Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive 2019 Special Edition. It's actually not that special, but John Kelly, I'd like to welcome you back to the show. How was your new year? Thank you, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I haven't spoken to you since last year. But I'm bumped is right. Um, Nick, how's your 2019 going so far? It's it's good. I'm excited. You know, we're, we have a very special guest on today from uh, from our very own Vanity Fair, uh, who is going to talk to us about who is going to be the uh, 2020 potential nominee for the Democrats. What's going to happen now that the House is being taken over by the Democrats, and who of the uh, the lasting senators uh, that are swaying the line in the middle. Who of them will be uh, will be ready to indict uh, President Trump? So uh, uh, we have Claire on from uh, from Vanity Fair. I'm very very excited about that. Um, but before we get there, uh, let's um, let's talk about uh, about some tech stuff. What do you think? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Uh, as much as I'm sure people want to hear Claire Landsbaum talk, I have to confess, I invited myself on this program this morning, uh, this afternoon, uh, rather because. Um, uh, when I woke up and I saw the uh, all the news of the Apple write down and just how much the the, the stock uh, had fallen, uh, I immediately texted you and said, "We need to talk about this because I have no idea what's going on. Is this all related to to Trump's trade war, or is this partly uh, just a, a slowdown in iPhone sales? Is this some sort of..." recognition that the that Apple has hit its iPhone ceiling that that this product that makes up like 60% of its of its business is uh, is flatlining. Well, so let's just put it into perspective for listeners who do not follow the uh, financial markets. Um so this uh this week um Tim Cook sent a letter to investors on Wednesday actually saying that um that he was lowering the fiscal first quarter revenue targets uh to 84 billion in sales, uh, rather than 89 billion to 94 billion, which was their forecast in November, uh, because he blamed it uh, partially on the uh, relationship we have with China these days. But it's because iPhone sales are weakening, and so I think that um, that he's right to do that because if uh, if they would have come out uh, in the next quarter and shown that they missed the mark by that much, the stock would have fallen a hell of a lot more than it has in the last two days. What's interesting is I think that this is a larger theme that's going to be happening in the tech sector. There's news, of course, today that Mark Zuckerberg is halting sales of the Facebook share for himself because he has seen that uh, continue to drop. I, I mean, it's just it's like never ending with Facebook because of all the bad things that have happened. But I think we're going to start to see this happen with other companies too. It's not just going to be Facebook and Apple, but um, Amazon uh, will be affected. Uh, you know, Google will probably be affected in some way, shape, or form with ad revenue. When it comes to Apple itself, 
this ha- this actually did happen before. This happened in 2002, uh, and it was you know on the heels of the uh, um, the the bubble pop from from 99. Um, Steve Jobs posted a very very short 200 word press release back then, where he said that um, you know like other industries that they were expecting a slowdown in the following quarter by around 10. percent um, The reason, of course, was not because of iPhones because they didn't exist back then. Uh, but what happened a year later was um, Apple brought out the iPod, and the stock has been on an upward trajectory ever since. And so I think the big question is not necessarily if Apple is kind of screwed because iPhone sales are slowing, whether it's because of Trump's um, policies with China or not, um, which I think only play a small part in it. But I think the big question is if if Apple is going to be able to bring out something new, a new segment, a new market, a new technology, something, uh, if they're going to be able to bring something new out in 2019. And I think if they don't, uh, investors should be a lot more worried than they are just about the simple first quarter. But it seems like um, Apple has moved very aggressively into services, you know, not not software, but I guess it's like, I don't know, it, music, uh, th- th- this texture deal that everyone's talking about, where they're kind of, kind of trying to turn Apple News into the into the global newsstand. I think Scott Galloway said either on, on your podcast or, or maybe uh, Kara Swisher's podcast that, you know, if Apple wanted to, they could just like make, you know, <laughs> VCRs and microwave ovens and, and, and fully like own this sort of, you know, become a, a tech version of like restoration hardware and continue to make money. But they don't want to do that, right? They want to go further into the machine and, and, and own the, uh, the ingredients inside the hardware. Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing with Apple is it's always been a a company that has sold software to make to sell hardware. Um, you know, I think that whereas Microsoft has been a company that has sold hardware to make, to sell software, um, and I think that with Apple, they it's a hardware company, um, and they have been trying to kind of shift that over the over the years, and you know, their app business has been one form of revenue that they have made um, a, a lot more money on um, over the last few years. But the problem is that the apps are dried up. No one, you know, I have friends that are engineers that that um, that have made apps and, and they are getting out of that business. No one, you know, no one downloads apps the way they used to. It's not like you're, right, you're yeah, on there Right, yeah, social media has destroyed that. Yeah, and and it's and also this it's just the, the people are more concerned with watching movies on Netflix on their phone because the screens are bigger now, or they, you know, they've already picked the game that they like, or um, or as you said, they're on social media, whatever it is. Uh, and so I think that Apple needs to get back into the hardware business. Personally, that's just my personal opinion. I think that there's a lot of software that but, they can. But what can they do? Nick? I mean, I, I'm curious. Like, you know, Facebook released this new project uh, product portal, which. I have no um, data on this at all, but I, I don't think it's going to do well. It doesn't. It seems like a very clunky um, uh, idea that doesn't actually sort of solve any need, and it seems like the most invasive entrant into the into the domestic market. You know, like um, all the home products and Alexa and all that. Like this seems like the most scary Facebook version imaginable. Um, uh, w- what is left for Apple to do? Well. That's a great question, John. Thanks for asking that question. What is well, I'll tell you what's left. Look at Alexa. Alexa didn't exist a few years ago. Apple was at the forefront of talking to your devices with Siri, and Alexa is now, I mean, they are selling devices if you look at all of the lists of the, the most sold device, the most sold electronics on Amazon over the holidays, it's always these little Alexa dots and Alexa 
um, speaker systems and this, that, and the other. Alexa is is taking over the living room. It's it is it's beating Microsoft. It's beating Apple. Um, it's going to destroy Facebook. Um, and I think that you know that Apple was was poised to take over the living room before anyone else. And I yeah, think that they kind TV, of screwed right? that up. Yeah. yeah, Apple TV. You know, this was on on Steve Jobs' deathbed. He had said to. Uh, um, uh, to someone I, I spoke with once that, that he, he regrets, he regretted not finishing what he, he set out to do in the living room. And that was to make this experience that, you know, that knew you better than you knew yourself and that you, you could interact with, with your voice that, that he thought the remote control was the, the dumbest thing ever invented and the worst thing ever invented. And, um, and I don't think that Apple has seen that through in any way, shape, or form. They they explored building TVs, then they decided not to because people don't buy new TVs enough. They um, they have the speaker system, cars but the, too, and they decided not to do that. Yeah, they've explored cameras. They've ex- you know they've, they've all these things, and I think that part of the problem is is they they need markets. They're massive, and um, and I think that maybe when it comes to the home, um, they need to kind of put their foot down on the gas pedal and start actually releasing some products because the reality is they haven't really released anything new in years. You know, they've, there's new versions of iPhones and watches and, and Apple TV, but there's no new segment that this company has put out under Tim Cook really uh, that has has been a complete and utter breakout, and um, in the same way that the iPod was or the iPhone was, and I, and part of the reason for that is because they don't want to cannibalize their other products. But what Apple was best at under Steve Jobs was putting out something that cannibalized their other products before someone else did. Sure. Yeah. And so yeah, I yeah, think that's that, right. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> I think but, that that um, that the uh, the best move forward for them would be to. Uh, to just take a chance and put one foot in front of the other and just go and and uh, otherwise someone else is going to do it for them. But but don't you think that the not just Alexa but the the Google Home products which they're are you know they're moving aggressively into is it too late for Apple to get into home? I mean I it, yeah. you know the, the the watch experiment seems like uh, a noble effort but um it hasn't, you know, it hasn't paid off to the extent that they probably expected it to or wanted it to. I'm not saying it's not successful, but but it but it's not a rocket ship. It, it, it's very these opportunities are very limited. I mean, I think we're we're making it sound like they can just you know uh, pick a a product segment and and create magic, but but there aren't that many that allow for reinvention on the scale, as you say, that uh, it's worth it for Apple to play in the space. Yeah, I mean, I think that's partially why Tim Cook keeps talking about the health industry. You know, that the the, um, the health industry is a multi-trillion-dollar industry sure. that, that Apple, I think, will. I mean, Amazon's will end already up in. there. Yeah, Amazon's already there. Um, the Apple Watch. I don't think that they really care as much about making a watch on your wrist as much as they care about all the data they can get from the health aspects of it. Which is why every time there's a new Apple Watch, there's a new health feature. But I think that um, uh, that the that the living room is is an is a huge opportunity, and I don't think that they've missed the boat. I think that the best product is the thing that will survive. the The problem is, is Apple notoriously has a higher market price for its products, whereas um, Amazon notoriously does not. You know, you can get the Apple speaker for a few hundred dollars. You can get the Amazon Alexa Dot for twenty nine ninety nine. Um, and even less when they have the specials going on um, on Amazon's website. So I think that that they're that they kind of need to just to try to go for it. Uh, they've been, you know, I mean, I remember when the iPad came out and um, <clears throat> a decade, uh, almost a decade ago, 
And uh, Steve Jobs came to the New York Times and showed it to us, and we got to play with it. And I remember asking him, you know, when are you going to take over the living room? And he, at the time, he said that that they were still exploring it, but it was even back then that they were obsessed with it. And so, um, I, it, but they, but I don't feel like they have properly yet. And I I think that sure. Go for the health market. That's really important. It's actually a noble good, I think, um, to do health prevention rather than health care uh, using technology. But I also think that they're, you know, if if Apple wants to stay as the sexy brand, they also have to have to do something uh, that's a consumer electronics play. And and I think the best way forward is either a car or the living room. And um, the latter seems to be the most logical. So we'll see. We'll see if they do it. I think 2019 is going to be the big test for this company. Let me ask you one other question. Um, this is sort of an interpersonal drama uh, question. Uh, you know, all these companies at, at that size are, uh, are are now all playing in each other's uh, um, sandboxes to, to a large extent, right, as they look for uh, – compete for market share in – in markets like healthcare, that are a, a sixth of the economy, which is the, the size it needs to be to, to afford those kind of entrants, it does seem like Apple and Facebook are on um, some sort of collision course. If not, just in terms of market cap, but but dueling philosophies among the CEOs. Uh, at, at what point do you think um, Apple could do something that could negatively affect Facebook's uh, growth and and, uh, and stock price? Well, I think that they're trying to, honestly. I think that, you know, uh, one of the things Tim Cook has done last year, and I'm sure he will do more of this year to, to separate himself even more, is that he has um, he's really taken the gloves off and kind of gone after the social media companies, Twitter, Yes, no, he's Facebook definitely talked shit, and, and he's talked shit in a public public way. You know, um, the, the, the talking point that he uses, which is a very good one, is that they sell products not your data like you know their business model isn't the consumer um which is like i mean it's like it's like funny and sad because it's so true you know but do you yep. but, but what what financial underpinnings what 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 business strategies i'm sure they're already doing them you're absolutely right well, but, can, but can you illuminate what they are how are the knives coming out I think it's already it's happening, but you're not realizing it. So think about the fact that uh, the two years ago you probably went to Facebook and you posted a picture of your newborn kid, or their first step, or the uh, <clears throat> the restaurant that you went to, or the magazine article you read, or whatever it was. You would post that stuff on Facebook, and more and more as Facebook fucked with our privacy uh, and um, Apple saw an opportunity, Apple decided, let's make this thing that everyone uses 472 times a day called iMessages a social network. And, and iMessages is a social network that takes time away from you using Facebook. And you can share links in there and it automatically puts a little preview of the video that you can click on. You can like something and and um, and heart it or dislike it or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <clears throat> And I think that if Apple really truly wants to, and I think what's happened is partially because they have made that a better feature and a better product, the iMessages, um, and it works on across all of your Apple devices. I think more people have used it, but also because they don't feel like they are being tracked from a um, from a from a, di- a data privacy point of view, they 
people opt to use that instead of Facebook. And I think that if if Apple really wants to fuck with Facebook and make people use it even less, they could make iMessages even better. Um, and it's it's a it's it seems like a really kind of a no brainer. Uh, and I just you know I think that that's one way they can they can really really hurt Facebook. They can do other things like you know ban them from the App Store or whatever, which would probably never happen. But um, uh, but the thing that they've been doing, I think, all along without us realizing is is the thing that they will continue to do. So we shall see. We shall see. Well, Nick, thank you all for right. allowing me to invite myself on your podcast. I really appreciate it. <clears throat> of course. So uh, stay tuned because we have uh, Claire Landsbaum on, who is the Hive's associate editor. She was, uh, as you know, John, uh, covered politics and culture for New York Magazine and The Cut before she joined us. And she is coming on the show to explain who all the new players are in Washington, D.C., and what they are going to be fighting for. Um, it's it's going to be a fun one. So uh, let's do it. All right. Thanks, Nick. Claire, Happy New Year. Welcome to Inside the Hive, the first edition for the 2019 year. I'm really excited to have you on. This is like a huge, huge deal. Are you excited? I'm so excited for my inaugural Inside the Hive experience. Yes. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> so I uh, t- this week is is a huge week because the House is going to be handed over to the Democrats. It's being handed over to the Democrats as we as we speak. Um, and you wrote uh, a, a large piece for Vanity Fair about all of the new power players, not just in Washington but in media and um, people that could be you know running for president next year and, and and who knows what so I kind of wanted to go through some of them and and hear your thoughts on different people um the piece you wrote is kind of laid out into different segments and the watchdogs the newcomers the this that the other um so let's start I want to start with the the new speaker of the house Nancy Pelosi who hasn't been speaker since 2011. Give us a little lay of the land of what what you think she might be doing. Is she going to come out with her arms swinging and bats and guns and whatnot? Or is she going to be kind of a little tamer uh, and she's going to kind of figure things out as she's doing it? Bats and guns, um, metaphorical. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess we're getting – we got a little preview of how she would kind of approach things in the run-up to – um, her swearing and considering uh, the government shutdown that we embarked upon in the end of December. Um, so she kind of – she pretty much came in with bats and guns, which was um, impressive. I, I It seemed to take some people by surprise, but I guess it shouldn't necessarily have because she's always been this way. She really savors conflict. If you read interviews with her, she's really she, – she loves to kind of – not to get one over on people. But you know what I mean? She's, she's most energized when she is, is trying to outmaneuver somebody. And she's really good at it, which is why she's been around for so long. Um, so the, the bats and guns thing is, is kind of carrying through. Um, so far, she's introduced measures to – reform um, ethics in the House, and she has kind of come in with this attitude of, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna to hold strong. And it's interesting, though, because she has as well made statements like, okay, I would be open to cooperating with Trump on, on this and such, which has made um, other new members of the House kind of wary. So it, it's interesting to see where she'll come down on that. But so far, I think her actions are are speaking louder than her words, uh, so to speak. 
Well, so, but one of the things that's that's really interesting is she she's in one beat she's saying, oh, you know, I'll work with Trump. Um, in another beat, she's saying that, you know, she said this week um, in one of the one of the news shows that she does believe that uh, she doesn't she didn't believe she it's open to interpretation right. as to whether a sitting president can be indicted. Um, and so is she, is this just kind of a little bit of like a mafioso horrible where she <laughs> says, hey, I'm going to play nice if you play nice, if not, I'm going to not play nice. Is that what's going on a little bit or, or does she have an, a larger agenda that, that we just don't know about yet? So I think she is doing a lot of wait and see right now. So um, she said she's always been kind of tentative on the question of impeachment. You know, even when younger caucus members were really going for the jugular, she kind of advised them to sit and wait. And part of that was an electoral strategy. But part of that, I, I think, is like her like laying down her cards and trying to make sure her caucus survives whatever is coming. Um so she's been kind of kind of back and forth on that. The indictment thing I do think was interesting because we haven't heard her say that yet. And it's not entirely surprising again, but it is – she's kind of laying down these lines in the sand about what could unfold under her. Um, it is it is a little mafioso, but at the same time, I think she is being more cautious than a lot of, of other people in her caucus. Um but she's kind of a master maneuverer. Like this is this is what she's she's coming in to do, and I think she's done it. To say, I mean, it's hard to say. It's been you know a few weeks, but I think she's she's riding the waters well so far. All right, so I want to continue with a, a few other women on this list, and um, that I find truly fascinating. And um, you call them the new wave. There's, you know, uh, freshman Democrats, Alexandria uh, Cortez, there's Alania Presley, there's Ilhan Omar, there's, you know, this whole list of women uh, that I don't think have, we've ever seen anything quite like it before. Um, they are non-white, LBGTQ, they're, you know, all female. Give us a little bit of a label line of like, of what they will be up against, what their agenda is, if there's someone... That's kind of going to be, you know, helping usher them through, and uh, and if so, who is that? So um, one of the things, and so Nancy Pelosi did an interview with Elle um, this that came out this week, where she talks about um, I. <laughs> so for it's kind of it's called shine theory. It's uh, something that Anne Friedman pioneered back in the day, um, and it's it's like it's about helping other women and how. Um, it's not a zero-sum game. One woman's success doesn't mean another's failure. And she talked about how her mentor did that for her and encouraged her to run for office and how she would be trying to kind of guide these um, freshman women through that same course and kind of kind of um, lending them a hand, you know. I, I don't know how much of that will actually unfold. Obviously, that's like a wait-and-see thing. But um, I do – I honestly don't know. <laughs> I think they're pretty adept at forging their own path, um, especially like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has even – there's been some tension around whether or not she's going to vote for um, the the measure that the Democrats have proposed to fund the government again um, because there's – I think it's called pay-go – <laughs> something there's it's about um deficits right so um the measure says that the um democrats that the house can't spend beyond what it has and um AOC is kind of pushing back on that so i do think that they're that this group of women is going to be like pretty independent minded 
um, not in, not independent, but you know, pretty pretty. Um, they have their own way of thinking about things, and I think that they feel very much that they have the mandate to to pursue that. So um, I'm, and they're also they're also ready for a fight. I mean, you have this great yeah. quote from from as you call her AOC. I love that. Uh, where <laughs> That's she her says like social media name, right? It's like her trend. I know. I'm. I'm 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 not on social media that much these days, so uh, this well, is old new to me. I'm it. like a, I'm like an old man talking to a teenager. Um, oh my god! Don't uh, call me a teen. <laughs> I mean, she says uh, she says there's so many people that know uh, that we're going into the lines. Then and then she says even within her own party, and you know it's interesting when you look at the you know the pictures of of all the people the, the incoming uh, Congress members. What's so fascinating is kind of looking at the incoming Democrats versus the incoming Republicans and, you know, the the latter being majority, uh, I mean, almost all uh, white men that have been doing this for the same period of time that, you know, most of us have been paying attention to this stuff. And, and it doesn't seem like they are going to change. And I guess the question I have is really is, is will this small group um, uh, will it actually be able to? Will they be able to affect some change within within the House? You just said that that uh, AOC is not going to maybe won't vote for this new initiative. But are there other ways? Is it is it kind of like a lot of backroom dealing that they get to do, or or is there legitimate votes that they will have power over? So I think it it I mean some of it will depend on where they end up in terms of committee appointments and things like that. Um, like Abigail Spangberger is an ex-CIA agent, so she said that she um, put put her name forward to be on the Intelligence Committee. That hasn't really happened with somebody of um, her age who's a freshman before, but it would make sense in certain aspects to put her on there because she does have intelligence experience, obviously. So um, it's hard. It's kind of hard to say at this point. Um, I think that in a way they are definitely um, – so they interact a lot on social media. Uh, which I know you you said you're not really on, but like, um, so this this portrait that appears in the magazine has been uh, like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez posted it on her Instagram, and so did Ilhan Omar, and then Deb Haaland had it in her story, and you know it's just been kind of a good back and forth. Um, there's I feel like there's a lot of solidarity there, um, especially among those members. So it I do think that they will in some sense hold together as a group. Um, whether or not that becomes effective inside the larger party, I'm not sure. Um, it it does seem like Democrats will have to hold together to kind of navigate this this Trump world situation, but um, obviously there are factions within that. So <laughs> it's it is really a hard question to answer, but I do think that coming in now, these women are poised to make a difference and that they feel fired up and and ready for whatever may face them, whether it's opposition within their own party or from the outside. But I do think it'll it'll be a lot of intra-party maneuvering um, at first because they are obviously in the majority. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about the godfather, Uncle Joe, <laughs> Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, you know, he's been pretty quiet as of late. There's a lot of rumors that he will run for president. Um, who knows? It's all rumors and hearsay at this point, with the exception of Elizabeth Warren. Um, do you – does he play a role in in this coming, you know, the next few months, the next year? Uh, and if so, what exactly is that? So it's tricky to say whether or not he will run. Um 
Uh, I want to, I don't know. So here's the thing. If he runs, um, then obviously he'll play a role. If he doesn't, then I think he'll still play a role behind the scenes in terms of like fundraising and things like that. Um, There is a lot of rumor and speculation. Um, I know the Hive published a piece that (laughs) that reported that um, Biden was was displeased with Obama and Obama world for kind of flirting with other um, potential 2020 Democratic candidates. So that does tell me that he's he's at least strongly considering it. And then, of course, the New York Times had a piece about his basically skeleton presidential campaign that's ready to, to jump in at a moment's notice. So, I mean, whether or not he runs, something will happen with that infrastructure and whether it is you know, support for other Democratic candidates or for himself, I definitely think that there's like machinery that's been set into motion that will play a part in 2020 and in the primary um, in one way or another. In your personal opinion, if if he does run, do you think that he has a chance of, of actually beating Trump, given that he gets <laughs> to be the blue collar Joe? Um, or is it is it uh, does that give Trump another upper hand in saying, "Oh, it's just the old, the old guard trying to get back in after after I've been in office for X number of years"? Yeah. So, he, so I think if he runs, and he wins the Democratic primary, and Trump is the Republican candidate, I think that he will have a good chance. I do. Um, and I, I that may be <laughs> spouting the the common knowledge, but um, I do think that he speaks to a subset of Americans that is important. Whether or not he speaks to the new Democratic Party is a, a valid question. The quote-unquote new, you know, like the increasingly, you know, female-centric, non-white, LGBTQ segment of the Democratic Party, which is growing statistically, you know, every year, every month. Um, I'm not sure. There are, there are questions around some of his past conduct. I know that the Anita Hill trials are predicted to be a sore spot for him, but that'll probably play out in the primary. Um, If he does win the primary, I would think that he would have a pretty good chance. All right. So um, let's move on to the watchdogs um, (laughs) who are, who I think we're all the most excited about, Um, you know, for, for two years, the GOP, uh, committees that have been chaired by GOP members have been supposedly looking into all of the bad things that Donald Trump has done and have done, quite frankly, a pretty pathetically shitty job of doing that, <laughs> intentionally so. To put it mildly. Uh, yeah, to put it mildly. Um, they, uh, they're they now being replaced by a small group of, uh, I believe it's five people. You've got Elijah Cummings, Jerry Nadler, Adam Schiff, Maxine Waters, and Richard Neal, who will chair the Oversight and Government Reform Committee. Um the, and you've got the, the House Intelligence Committee being uh, overtaken, the Financial Service Committee, all these different committees that will now be run by Democrats and people who who have been in the ring for quite some time and know know how to do this. What do you predict is going to happen? Are we going to are they going to come after Trump? You know, like lines in a den, or are they going to slowly pick at him like vultures? Like what? What? What's <laughs> How's this going to play out? Um, All these for, animal metaphors. I, you know, it's, it's like war and metaphor. And, you know, <laughs> right. Um, so, okay. So you do have this group of people who has been pretty clear about their intentions and in interviews leading up to this. Um, obviously, Nadler and Schiff has said that they're going to investigate the president and it'll pretty much be no holds barred. The tricky thing is that they have to avoid avoid what Trump and McConnell are branding as, quote-unquote, presidential harassment, um, <laughs> which is basically 
the it posits that the American people don't like it when the executive branch is under investigation. Um, whether or not that's true with this president is among the majority of the country. It's hard to say. I mean, I know that it's true among his supporters and maybe among Republicans in general. Um, but for, I mean, they have declared that they are going after this guy, kind of no holds barred, and they've put in place a lot of the legal framework that's required to do that. So you have, um, you know, people saying that they're they're going to demand to look at the president's tax returns. And as um, Abigail Tracy reported for The Hive, you have Republicans kind of scrambling to come up with a legal defense for that. And, and you know, the administration kind of trying to preempt that particular avenue of exploration. So I do think it's going to be kind of a, a knockdown drag out um, Maybe that unfolds slowly because, you know, you have all these document requests and interviews and things like that. But I do think it's going to be – it's going to be intense. Um, I, people are excited and I would maybe caution that a little bit because we, it's hard to say the effect that this will have on the electorate and the country and, and um, popular opinion of the executive branch. But um, – I, I think that this will be the area in which we see the most concrete. This on, you know, obviously Nancy Pelosi leading the House. This we'll see like some real concrete um, probing of the administration and results. I would anticipate, um, unless somehow Trump world is, you know, successful in in warding off these kinds of probes. But I don't. So- I don't think they will be. These guys kind of have the the momentum behind them. Well, one thing that's that's interesting is for for the last two years, everything Trump has accomplished or not accomplished has been on his own back. Um, he's controlled three houses of government, three uh, three segments of government, and um, and has been been able to do a lot with them. And and whether he was successful or not, he could brag or about how or or completely ignore the fact that it didn't work. But now he gets to in in a year and a half from now, if the stock market is down, if the economy is down, if anything goes wrong, he has someone to blame it on, and that's the Democrats mm-hmm. because they control a part of government that is going to investigate him. Uh, do you think that that the American people will buy that, or the, and when I say the American people, I'm not talking about the whatever 30 million or 40 million that would vote for Trump if yeah, he that's for 39%. did absolutely yeah if he did absolutely anything um let's forget about them and also let's forget about the people who would vote for democrats if they did absolutely anything um there's that group in the middle that kind of decides who is president and who is not and i'm curious if you think that they will be turned off by this or if they'll believe trump when he says that you know things are in a bad state because of the democrats um, could this all backfire on them? Could this backfire on Trump or could this backfire on, no, on backfire the Democrats? No, backfire on the Democrats. You yeah, know, the there's – I mean, there's definitely that possibility. That's kind of what we saw with Clinton. Obviously, a different situation. But um, I – it's 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 hard to say. I'm kind of taking the shutdown – well, the shutdown coverage is its own unique kind of petri dish. Um, but if you extrapolate from that a little bit um, – you know, he is taking a lot of the blame for that. Um, polling shows that most people think that it's the executive branch's fault, and most people are not huge fans of the wall. So so I do think that there is some level of discernment um, in the American body politic. Maybe that's being optimistic. I don't know. But um, that, that people understand who is at fault. Um, 
I do think that Trump and his allies and, you know, the propaganda mechanisms that work in his favor will be working overtime if, you know, things should take a turn for the worse um, to try to pin the blame elsewhere. But I also think that Trump has taken a lot of credit for the economy and he's sort of intrinsically tied his um, his administration to this pattern of economic success. And now we're kind of starting to see, you know, an about face and there is a lot of question whether he can survive that um, or, you know, how serious it is and, and things like that. But um, it could backfire on the Democrats, um, but it, it could also mm- work out pretty well if they right. <laughs> find something really bad. These questions, and- yeah, they're, they're, they're hard to answer. It depends on what they find. It depends on, I think, what Mueller finds. It depends on how the, prop- the propaganda machines around the president, you know, crank into, into overdrive. And um, it depends on who is speaking out, I think, because you've seen in these past couple of weeks a lot of Republican frustration with Trump as well and um, a lot of eye rolling around the shutdown. And so I think that if mainstream Republicans start to get a little nervous around the investigations surrounding Trump or if, if something happens to shake their faith, I think that could have a really, um, dis- a, a, really a, a big effect for the rest of the country, too. Hmm. Um, okay, let's talk about someone who we don't know if they'll run or if they don't, uh, but it's someone who I find truly fascinating as a potential presidential nominee who you wrote about, um, Mike Bloomberg. So I was at a I was in Idaho, Sun Valley, Idaho over the over the, the break and um was at a New Year's Hi. party. Uh was visiting some friends with, with family and oh, cool. um you know, uh, sledding and fun things like that. Yes. And um and we were at this New Year's party, and there was a guy who came to the party who was a former Navy SEAL, uh, voted for Trump, um, a strong Republican, really, really nice guy. Had a, we had a great conversation. But one of the things that we asked him was, um, you know, who would, you, would will you be voting for Trump in the next um, election? And he said probably yes, uh, because he believes in the Republican ideals, and he doesn't see a candidate on the left who he could who, who he could get behind. Um, but he did say that the one person he would vote for, um, no matter what, if they were to, to be the, the the nominee on the Democratic side, would be Mike Bloomberg. Um, and I, I we hear this all the time. And you, it's in your piece. You know, someone uh, said that they, you know, the founder of the uh, Whale and Global Advisors said that they would vote for Mike in a in a heartbeat. Do you think that he will run? And if he does, is there a world in which he actually can rise to the top in the Democratic Party, or? Or what? So I'm curious. Why do you why do you find him fascinating? Like specifically, is it just because he kind of straddles this weird line? No, I think that he. I think that that what I find fast. It's not necessarily fascinating. I find him truly accomplished. I think most people that we interact with and that we cover at Vanity Fair and you know the Times and the Post and all these places, most people are full of shit. I mean, I think that <laughs> most people really do not know what they're doing. They're just really good at acting it out. Uh, you know. Donald Trump is the king of all that. Right. Um, uh, and I think that um, they they will, you know, there's this kind of, this funny thing in Washington where people will kind of slowly explain how they feel about something to see how someone else responds. And then they can change their mind in midpoint to be like, oh, yeah, I hated that movie too, or whatever it is. And I think <laughs> that 
that Mike Bloomberg is not that. Mike Bloomberg is um, staunchly against, um, you know, the NRA. He's, you know, he strongly believes in better schools. He, there are all these things that I don't think that you could say or do anything that would make him change his mind about them. And I also lived in New York when he was mayor, and I think he did an excellent, excellent job. Um, and um, while there are things about him that I don't agree with, like, you know, his his uh, you know I think he does kind of come from the same school of thought as Trump about the media in some respects um, uh, and doesn't necessarily have a full amount of respect for it that I think someone of his stature should even though he owns Bloomberg um, News uh, I do think that he is someone that could be respected um, and around the world uh, and I think he would be a great president. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, what oh, are you Oh, ringing endorsement for Mike Bloomberg. From... <laughs> um, um, so, yeah. I... Yeah, sorry. Go no, on. go for it. No, I just, I think like, you know, people are like, oh, Beto O'Rourke is, you know, he, I, look, I think Beto's incredible. He's an incredible orator. He, he couldn't beat um, lion Ted Cruz. It's like, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's like. I mean, Ted has that beard now, so, you know. Ted, yeah, and the pot belly, and and I get that it's Ted. Everyone says, "Oh, Ted Cruz in Texas." Okay, great, it's Texas. So what? Like, if you can't beat Ted Cruz, I don't think that you should be going up against Donald Trump. Um, and I and I I look at all the candidates out there. Like, I I think Kamala Harris is great, but I don't know if she can beat him. I don't think Elizabeth Warren can. I think that um, she doesn't know how to pick how to fight with someone like Donald Trump. Um, I think she's incredible at what she does. Uh, but you know, I, I do look at Mike Bloomberg and think like, okay, he might be someone that could rise above it, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I find him interesting because like I highlighted in this piece, he does, he does straddle that line. Um, and those lines are actually from a piece that, uh, William Cohan wrote for us. So he kind of got the, the feel on wall street around a potential president Bloomberg. Um, and it was pretty positive, (laughs) you know, he took the temperature and, and, those folks were all for it. So, um, you know, I I think that he has the potential to rise above it. I think he's kind of um, he's kind of he's not unimpeachable, but but going up against somebody like Trump, it's hard. I think for Trump to find an in, and I think that is going to be key. Um, and in by an in, I mean. You know, maybe he'll call him Little Mike Bloomberg, but <laughs> but it's it's harder for him to find a purchase um, for something like the way he's talked about his Native American heritage, or 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 it's there's no totally obvious line of attack. Maybe I'm just you know hopelessly blind, and <laughs> maybe you know he'll fabricate something that I couldn't have possibly imagined. But um, I think that that is a strong point when it comes to. Um, a potential Democratic candidate. And it is interesting that you say uh, the former Navy SEAL who you met in Idaho. Um, yeah, Idaho. You yeah. got it right. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Iowa. No. Um, that, that, that that seems to be the opinion of, of people across the country. Um, I do think that he has picked up a subset of fans over the years through his involvement in politics and the business world. And I think that those subset of fans might surprise us. Um, so it's hard to say. Again, if he becomes the Democratic nominee, I think there's a better chance. I do think it's going to be kind of a bloodbath, um, obviously, the primary situation, because there is a lot of energy on the left, and what the left thinks of him is um, sort of unclear at this point. If he... 
is ever going to run for president, I think it's going to have to be now. Um, yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I don't think there's another year to, or another four years to go on dithering. So um, he certainly – he has every opportunity. Yeah, and the money. Um, right. He donated uh, – what did he donate? $100 million, uh to support the Democrat candidates in this last House you know, battle. And uh, he's donated billions to John Hopkins. He's – you know, as you've written about um, – you know, he's, he's, he, it's there. I don't know. Maybe it's there for the taking. Who knows? Uh, before I, I, I want to jump to some of the other people on the list, but before I do, I, I'm curious, who do you think is the most likely to be the Democratic nominee? That is a tough question. Um, who, who would you like it to be? <laughs> maybe? Who survives a primary, you're saying? I mean, what, there's going to be 28 people up oh there on God. that stage. It's going to be, yeah. you know, everyone from, from some celebrities we haven't even thought of yet to right the rock to sherrod brown to kanye's stupid west god i hate him (laughs) so much okay so much Uh, you know what i'm a fan of his music (laughs) i'm not a fan of anything that has his name i literally have muted him in in my browser so i can't see anything related He's back, yeah. And I only know this because I just muted him. I muted him on social media last year, and so you don't know. uh, Okay, yes. But he just he just was tweeting more about how he's pro Trump again. Like, just shut the fuck up, Kanye West, please. Thank you very much. Kanye is like a whole other cultural, (laughs) like yeah, Morris. but he's an idiot. Um, <laughs> anyway, but putting aside the my little anti Kanye Kanye rant. yeah, who's who do you think who do you who would you prefer to see win maybe or who do you think has the best chance of beating Trump or who do you think it'll be? Um I mean, I do think there's so here's the thing. <laughs> I am I'm from Texas. Um I was raised there and there I sort of witnessed not firsthand but closely secondhand a lot of the energy around Beto. Um my dad is a lifelong Republican. Um and I kind of did the same thing that you did with that ex-Navy SEAL. I kind of like surveyed him and his golf buddies. And I was like, you know, who are you voting for in the Senate race? And they surprisingly told me that they were going for Beto. And granted, they're kind of in a suburb that's more affluent outside of Houston. Um, and so maybe more inclined to go for somebody like that. But I do think that he has staying power. And I think that he could um, survive a primary and kind of rise to the top. And I, I do think that, th- I mean, the question then becomes, can he win in a general election with the policies that he's talked about? And, um, you know, I don't know. I do think there are a lot of inroads for a Trumpian attack against him. So <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of a perpetual <laughs> yeah, exactly. pessimist is, is what makes it hard to, to make these sorts of predictions. I think he would have a good chance. I think Kamala Harris has a good chance. I am... A little worried about a Warren bid, not because I don't think she's an incredible candidate, but because I think there's already so much fuel out there about how, um, you know, the DNA test and everything and and folks on the left kind of squawking in protest. Um, But I do think in the end it'll come down to who can speak not to the far left of the Democratic Party, but who can speak to the majority of the country. And I do think that she would be a great choice. Um, I agree. I do think she'd be a great choice. I just don't think – I think that you – you know, it's interesting. Uh, we were all talking about Michael Avenatti earlier last year. <laughs> God, I remember, on stage. And I remember him. 8,000 years ago? Yeah. Um, and I, I remember sitting down with him in the green room at the Vanity Fair conference right before Emily Jane Fox interviewed him. And I said to him, you know, 
are you really going to run? Uh, he's obviously not now, but he <laughs> he said um, he said yes, and he said and he and I said, do you really think you could win? And he said, yeah. He goes, I feel like you you can't be a traditional politician to get in a fight with um, uh, with Donald Trump. He's he he fights differently. He's like a it's it's almost like a a, a you know a street fighter getting into the ring with a traditional um, you know. The boxer or whatever right. it is, and of course, you know he's going to bite and kick below the belt and do all these things that uh, that that a traditional fighter would not. And I think that that is very true for for politics too. Um, and I think that uh, that Elizabeth Warren, for for all of her brilliance, and I do think she's truly brilliant. I don't think she knows how to. It's not. It's not a. It's not a, a diss against her. I just don't think she knows how to fight with Trump. And I think that he's. I mean, look, he's already tweeting today. I was reading oh, the, um, meme. the meme of, of the, that she's one slash twenty twentieth. So and clever. Very clever. Brilliant. Yay! Like, okay, you're really smart, Donald Trump. But but it works. How does she? Res- it does work. It completely works. The fact that she did the DNA test, it worked. It was this. It was just silly. Um and. Uh, and so, unless she can figure out how to how to take him on um, in a different kind of ring, I I think that he he will just continue his unfair below the belt, biting people's ears, you know, whatever it is. And you know, I'm not saying that Mike Bloomberg would be able to figure out how to respond to that. I just don't think he would respond to it. Right. Um, yeah. So. And I do. I yeah. think that it, it sort of comes down to having a message that contrasts with Trump's as well. Um, you know, you have someone like Bloomberg who could be like very stoic and kind of rise above it. And I think people would gravitate toward that, especially after, you know, what I hear from my friends in Texas about their attitude to, uh, around Trump's personality and, you know, what he's doing um, on a foreign policy level. Um, and then I do think you have someone like Beto who has a lot of energy behind him. And I just think that he is so optimistic. He kind of has a rosy glow from not being um, enmeshed. A rosy in, glow. <laughs> <laughs> an aura, you know, of, from not being enmeshed in in the D.C. political sphere for so long. So I think that somebody that, yes, I, I don't think they'll come from the Hill necessarily. And I think it will have to be someone who has their own brand of whatever it is that's that's just as strong as Trump's. I do look. I hope. I think. I do think Beto is a is an incredible speaker. Um, and you know, seeing some of his speeches, they're incredibly inspiring, and they remind me of you know when I've last year on the podcast we had experts on that had you know written books and done podcasts about RFK and JFK, and and you go look at their speeches and Obama's early speeches, and and you it's it's truly inspiring. And I I I do hope that, and I think Beto is in that camp. I think that there's there are a few people that are born with the gift that these folks have. Um, See what I mean? The rosy aura. <laughs> the rosy aura. I think I actually think that uh, if Kamala Harris um, lets her guard down a little bit and stops being such a politician and actually starts being herself, I think she has it too. I, I, I've, you know, spent time with her and seen her speak. And mm-hmm. and I think that she, um, that she's capable of, of, of being up there with these guys that are – that are out there just saying what they believe. Um, I'm sure Elizabeth Warren too. I'm sure um, there are a couple of other folks that may be running that would say the same, that we could say the same thing about, but, um, but yeah, Beto, he, you know, he has that thing going on. I just, yeah, I mean, I think, a, sorry, I'm ready for a woman president. I, I just, know. <laughs> I, think, I think we've gotten, we've seen such an amazing change in the house. Like let's vote in 
a woman that can get rid of all the icky crap that Donald Trump has left behind. I mean, I completely agree with you, and I'd probably be beside myself. I get very emotional about politics. <laughs> it's like... No, I know. this is. Wait, so here's a quick question for you because mm-hmm. I want to move on to some other folks on your list before we wrap up. Um, is there a woman that you think could, could win this? I do think Kamala Harris is a, is a good bet. Yeah? Yes, yep. I do. I think um, that Kirsten Gillibrand was kind of exploring a run, and I don't, I don't feel a ton of energy around that. Um, I do. Th- I will say this, though. There are people I've spoken to um, in politics in D.C. that have said that, you know, that a lot of people do believe that if she were to run Gillibrand, that she would be able to to stand up to Trump. That was someone mm-hmm. I was going to mention earlier that she that she does know how to go into the ring with him. Um, and and they're probably uh, you know more plugged in. I I like her very much. I think she's great. Yeah, well, we'll see if she. I I, I think that she could win too. Um, I, I would put her up there in that in that group, um, that small group that'll be left of the twenty eight after they all murder each other on stage. I can't uh, wait. Battle Royale. Okay, so um, let's move over to uh, some of the media um, folks real quick. So one of the people that you uh, wrote about is someone that a lot of people have a kind of a love-hate or a hate-hate or a love-love <laughs> feeling about, um, and that's uh, um, uh, someone who uh, calls him a, a, the little shit. Um, that is Ben Shapiro. Hey. Uh, so Ben Shapiro has really taken advantage of the um, the Donald Trump brand uh, to push his own brand, and that it, it really is is all it's about is the Ben Shapiro show all the time, and um, and he's but he's really good at it. You know, he he's not afraid to to go to battle um, with people on the left um, to quote unquote own the libs as he as he says over and over and over again. Right, um, kind of a mantra but, that's forever stuck in your head. Yeah. Yeah, uh, which I think is his one of his weaknesses is that he he thinks that that's what it's all about. When in reality, there's a much bigger bigger game at play here. But um, you know, he 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 runs the Daily Wire, the um, the website he founded I think three four years ago um, after leaving Breitbart that gets God knows how many millions of page views a, an hour. Someone like him who has managed to kind of go through the fray of the like the you know he's. He swerved his his brand around Steve Bannon and Milo Yiannopoulos and all those other folks and even Bill Kristol. Um, is he going to be like the next Tucker Carlson of the conservative movement? And if so, his his philosophies and his mantras of like owning the lips, like how does that work out for the larger, you know, Republican Party? Um, what do you mean by the last part? How does it work out? You know, well, it's like it's I I think that I. Think that we kind of underplay the the role that people in the media have on the parties that they are essentially representing. I think you know CNN. Um, I I I believe in this. Is look, I have no, I haven't done like a a call to a thousand Democrats to ask, but I think that like there's a or a thousand Republicans. I think that um, that CNN's constant anti-Trumpisms actually have made some Republicans. Uh, move more towards Trump, even if they don't like Trump. They've they've moved more in his direction in response to the way CNN has has covered the presidency over the last couple of years. Um, and I think that 
and I wonder if, and you know, and then at the same time, you've got like the Tucker Carlson's and the all the Fox News folks that have, have have made some people move more towards the left. And I wonder is you know what is the larger what what's the larger goal with a Ben Shapiro, and how does it affect politics? How does he affect politics? So he's taken kind of an interesting stand. Um... In some instances, I mean, I guess you kind of take it on a case-by-case basis, right? But he um, wasn't so pro-Trump, and then he kind of has, you know, I mean, that's part of his his public profile. Um, so it it it's <laughs> so I guess for lack of a better way to describe it, he kind of describes a lot of the Republican Party, but in so he's he's kind of taken over where those older voices have maybe died down, um, and it's possi- it's partly because he is so good at online communication and you know meme culture and <laughs> the kind of own the libs culture. Um, but I think that he represents a brand of of I don't it, sort of pseudo intellectualism that a lot of people on the right are attracted to. Um, I think it's a little. There's there's definitely animosity there, and but I don't think it's quite on the same level as Tucker Carlson, who goes on you know racist screeds um, on air all the time. Um, I think it's it's you know maybe one notch dialed down. It's still you know reprehensible in many ways, um, but I think that <laughs> in terms of the Republican Party, he does represent kind of um, the the Trumpier faction. Um, to the to the extent that I think that there is still kind of a, a feedback relationship there, where a lot of um, what is happening is kind of being met with approval, even though even if it's not outright approval, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. I I think yeah. I mean, I I I think that the the thing that I've come to realize working in media for so long um, uh, is that. The the media plays a much bigger role, not just in covering the news, but in swaying opinion um, in in really negative ways than than I think people that than the the problem is I think that that the the individuals are oblivious to the whole, and uh, the individuals are just uh, just concerned with their next byline and breaking the next story and whether it's right or wrong half the time, and and I think that you know the 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 country sees doesn't see the individuals they see the whole in the same respect as like what happened with um black lives matter movement you know they there were a there were a handful uh a, a 10% 20% i don't even know what it is of cops that were really bad people that did really fucked up things that shot innocent black men and arrested them and this that and the other and then there are some cops that are good cops that do the right thing and yet we are a lot of the country now perceives all cops as the same and i think that's the same probably with politicians the same with everything and i think that with when it comes to uh to the media we see one or two good or bad people and perceive everybody like that and i think that someone like ben shapiro who's clearly just out for ben shapiro um is is having an impact on journalism that I don't necessarily think is a good thing, um, uh, and I just I wonder if if society is going to be okay with it, or if they're going to keep clicking, or if they're going to get fed up with it in the same way that I believe that a lot of people are getting fed up with Trumpland. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you, what do you, what's your thought? Well, I think that he has his faction of supporters that are pretty adamant, and I do think that the clickability 
plays into that. And I don't necessarily know that people will stop. I think he's becoming like um, like a gravitational pull for a lot of Republicans as these other sites and outlets kind of fall off or, or become less popular. You know, you've seen kind of a downturn in, in Breitbart since um, Bannon defected. And, you know, there's been a lot of internal chaos. And, you know, the weekly standard is gone <laughs> the way of the dodo, as they say. I can't believe I just said that. But you know what I mean? It's it's <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's so I do think that there's been kind of um a deterioration and I think that he represents one of the bright spot the the bright spots in conservative media that people are still really attracted to and specifically young people. And I think that's important because that is the future of the movement and if those people are are giving him clicks then I don't I don't see how the cycle wouldn't just continue inevitably until the sun explodes or what have you until the sun explodes <laughs> you know um <laughs> yeah, yeah i do i do think that people are so i found it interesting there was an nbc um employee who had worked at the station for years and years and who quit and wrote something like a two it was either a 2000 word screed or a 20000 word screed and i can't remember which and that seems like an important distinction but um he wrote like a really long departure email about how we're all captives in the trump circus and how he wishes the station was being a little more critical um with its coverage and how is kind of we're being pulled into this vortex of perspective and an endless back and forth that he projects people will get sick of and that he certainly was tired of. So I do think that there is some fatigue. It's tricky. Um, I get this question from friends a lot who don't work in media who ask why we cover Trump so much. And I say it's because people read it. <laughs> so I think it's hmm. kind of the same situation with, with the someone like Shapiro. It's kind of a feedback loop that I can't see flaming out necessarily anytime soon. Yeah, no, I, I definitely um, I definitely get that question a lot, too, is why do we cover Trump so much or why is Trump in the headlines so much? Um, right. And, and I'm like, look in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I what's what what is really interesting um, and you should I know we, this is what we do for a living. We cover news, but you should try this is, you know, I didn't look at Twitter over the break once. Um, and I don't really think uh, I did either. I was pretty unplugged. I didn't hear about the, Elizabeth Warren until somebody else told me, which I, was really embarrassing. That's not embarrassing. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, uh, but what's so interesting is you kind of – you look at the – I went back and I, I logged into Twitter and I just, just to see what was going on and um, as I was on a plane. And um, and I saw all these you know people – the same people are tweeting the same bullshit about, about another Trump thing, another Trump tweet. And it's – and it's literally like I missed – I missed a week of them and – Nothing And they all came and nothing changed. <laughs> and it's like, I think that the, it's so interesting. I just, I just wonder how long the majority of people in journalism and, and, and consumers of journalism continue to just play into that. Cause I'm, I'm over it. I'm done. I'm like, I, like I tweet whatever you want, as long as it's not an, you know, that you, that you did a nuclear strike on England because you don't like something the queen said. Like, um, it's, I just think it's all, it's all just noise. And, um, uh, and I think I do think that pe I've said this before, and I've been wrong, but I do think that people are kind of getting a little fed up with it all. Um, mm -hmm. So, 
we will see. All right, so last question for you before we let you go. Um, there is a group of three people who you call the outsiders um, in your list, and that is um, Susan Collins, um, Lisa Murkowski, and Joe Manchin, the, the Republican senators who sometimes lean a little to the left. I think Joe Manchin, you know, leans in whatever direction he thinks will get him favor. But I, <laughs> I think that um, that Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski are, are really strong-willed um, they truly believe in a lot of the things they talk about. Sometimes, of course, they go off the edge in, a, in the wrong direction, but, um, you know, who, who doesn't? But they, you know, in a, with an, a world where we have a, uh, you know, Democratic House, but a Republican Senate, um, these three folks have quite a lot of power in the Senate. Um, do you think that they're going to ever use it against their own party, or do you think that it's always party before everything else, even for them? Well, I think it depends on the issue. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's party before everything else in every single case. Um, like you saw with Obamacare, it's it, it can be... I think these are people who really do listen to their constituents. Like, you know, Susan Collins had people applauding her in an airport. Lisa Murkowski was fielding calls. Both of their inboxes were full. You know, I, I think that it will depend on the situation, um, which I know is kind of a non-answer. <laughs> but um, I don't – it's it's trickier in the Senate because obviously they do have a firm majority. And so there's not a whole lot of um, motivation to go against the party line because they're not going to be the ones whose necks are on the line for it. You know, I mean – it, it may make a difference, it may not, but um, with McConnell's kind of vice grip, it more than likely won't. Um, but I, d I do think we'll have to kind of wait and see what sort of issues come down the line. Um, obviously, abortion access will be foreseeably something that is decided in the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, we'll see how that unfolds. But if that were to be an issue that would come up in the Senate, I'm not sure where... Um, Murkowski and Collins specifically would fall on that. Um, they've both said various things about access and in relation to healthcare as well. So, so I'm I'm not sure. I think their main um, role will be to kind of to kind of liaise and to. I think that they're very much people who feel things out, and we've seen that in the the back and forth coverage before some sort of crucial vote um, that they kind of take forever to decide where they fall on something. And that can be infuriating, but it's also something that I understand as a chronically indecisive person that they want to, they want to get a lot of input on things. So I, I, I do think it depends on, on what we see coming down the pipeline. Interesting, interesting. All right. Well, it is going to be an interesting 2019 and I'm really excited that we kicked this off with you. Thank you so much, Claire, for taking the time today. And, um, I we should we should make a little twenty dollar bet of who do, who we who we think is going to be the uh, the Democratic nominee. Oh my God! If we could answer uh, that question, we could win so much more than twenty dollars. I'm going to go with two people. Okay. I'm going to go with Kamala Harris, and I'm going to go with three people: Kamala uh, Harris, Nick, that's not even Beto, and Bloomberg in that particular order. Maybe that Beto, Kamala, Bloomberg. Those are my you three can do, favorites. Maybe Biden. Those are your three. If he if he runs, I don't think Biden. Uh, do you, <laughs> is that is that your order though? Is is it the same order or are you different? Sorry, tell me the order again. 
The order I I think is gonna I'm gonna go with Beto, Kamala, Bloomberg as my order of who will be the nominee. I think Beto Hmm. This is hard. Beto Beto Bloomberg Kamala. I was going to say that. But we don't even be- know if Bloomberg is running yet. Beto but might not we, run. I know we're making we're making a bet. <laughs> this is this is Vegas. Okay, all right, uh, all right, great. I can be vague. Yeah, I think I think Beto Bloomberg Kamala. All right. Well, we will see. Maybe Warren at the end. Maybe Warren? Nah. I don't think so. <laughs> you don't know. You don't know. It's true. You don't know. I mean, yeah. if we made this bet uh, a week before Trump Trump uh, became the nominee, we'd, we'd, we'd have been completely wrong. So maybe Warren. Right. And will Bernie Sanders run? I don't know. Maybe. maybe. Who knows? I'm, you know what? I'm just going to bet all of them. I'm going to take. I'm going to put a chip on every player and we'll see what happens. I don't think that's how betting works, but it's a good strategy. <laughs> Claire, thank you so much, and uh, we will uh, we'll see what, how it works out in the next few weeks. Solid. Good talking to you, Nick. You too. Thanks. Bye. Thanks to my guest today, Claire Landsbaum, and of course, John Kelly. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. It's 2019. Keep listening. You can find all of our last podcasts and our new ones on applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a glowing, incredible, salaciously, fantastically brilliant review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And I will see you all next week. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.